Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. Hello, everybody. I am Claudia Wessling, Director of Communications and Publications at Mercato Institute for China Studies, and I welcome you to the Merricks podcast. For today's show, I am joined by French economist Sébastien Jean, professor at the Conservatoire National des Arts et Métiers and a member of the French Council of Economic Analysis, an influential institution placed under the authority of the French Prime Minister. Welcome, Sébastien. Hello, thanks for having me. Um, also here with us today is Merrick's director, Miko Huatari. Hi, Miko, welcome to the show. Hi, Claudia, thanks for having us. We will talk about Europe's economic strategy vis-a-vis -vis China today. The European Commission's 2019 strategic outlook described China as a partner, a competitor, and a systemic rival. In a paper that you, the two of you wrote, actually the reason why we're coming together here today, um, a paper you wrote for the French Council of Economic Analysis, you argue that managing these different dimensions is proving increasingly difficult. Um, could you explain why this is the case? Uh, I think the reason for that is mainly twofold. One is that tensions have been increasing. The second one is that, is that policies have changed quite substantially. Uh, the increasing tension was already obvious when we began this work, which was before the war. Uh, it was abused because of uh, Chinese sanctions against Lit Lithuania, uh, because the sanctions over uh, the reciprocal sanctions over human rights abuses in Xinjiang, because as well of uh, as, uh, no limit friendship uh, announced be between China and Russia. All of these are really very serious. And now with the war and all this uh, in Ukraine and all concerns and questions, I think it's becoming even clearer that uh, it is not only a question of Chinese-European relationship becoming increasingly politicized, it is also the, the fact that we, are real, we realize that they are increasingly at risk of massive disruption, and we need to adapt to that. Uh, the second point is that policies have changed, and, and to make it short, we observe that China is putting increasing emphasis on self reliance, in particular for sensitive technologies, on indigenous innovation, on economic security, with, as a consequence, very intrusive policies, which have very concrete impact on EU companies. So the EU is trying to, to move forward in its agenda, but it is facing increasing challenges, and as well the increasing difficulties uh, in defining a positive cooperation agenda. So we have growing differences on the political um, level, and but also so economically, China trying to be more autonomous, um, stressing its domestic capabilities. Yeah, you really aptly described how in, uh, relations have increasingly been strained during the last years. And if I may now pass it on to Miko, I mean, one important part, Miko, of this tripartite description of EU-China relations is the partnership part. How under those circumstances is it still possible or how could the EU, if at all, keep this part alive? Well, it is life, right? I mean, cooperation is happening on a daily basis. Exchanges are happening. Um, so the business uh, component of that clearly is what has traditionally been seen as part of that a partnership agenda. Um, the challenge is here 
to turn that value that comes from that deep business relationship into something that goes beyond it. And I think this is where we are struggling. But billions of trade that are happening on a daily basis cannot just be ignored. It's, it's a pretty deep entanglement that we have uh, with China. And there's this, what can be called the paradox of decoupling. So instead of the two economic entities being increasingly disentangled, what is actually happening is, is that many corporates are seeking a deeper corporate footprint in China. So which makes it even more important that we have a joint agenda for shaping the conditions under which this business takes place. And then obviously, and that's always mentioned uh, when we discuss uh, European-Chinese partnerships, there is the future of global commons and the climate agenda is one where you know, we, we have to walk and chew gums at the same time, uh, which is we have to be competitive with regard to the new green industrial revolution. And we have to be making sure that um, the conditions for a climate transition are happening in China and internationally. And um, so that that's a big agenda. It does not take away the need to work with China, uh, all the challenges that we face. Um, there's other aspects, including the digital transformation as well, where clearly making sure that industrial data, for instance, can be transferred between jurisdiction is something that will be not just of corporate interest, but uh, of wider strategic relevance as we move forward. Um, Sebastian, if I may ask, I may turn this to you. Um, one one part or one important component of uh, the more partnership-oriented and cooperation-oriented part of the EU-China relation used to be the comprehensive agreement of investment. Um, it was shelved last year. How do you assess the chances of this being revived at some point? Yes, it is Obviously disappointing that uh, this uh, would be agreement that was understood and that has a sort of priority tool in order to engage China and to improve the quality of relationship. The fact that it is now uh, in a stalemate, uh, as a matter of fact. So we reflected upon that and uh, our feeling is that the political agreement upon this uh, was reached context where the political conditions for it to be applied by China were not met, actually. And uh, the freezing of ratification processes, uh, the Chinese sanctions afterward, uh, illustrated that. I think what this shows us is that we were lacking leverage somehow in the relation with China. We were presenting this agreement as uh, an opportunity for us to rebalance the relationship through Chinese Uh, concessions, but an agreement is never a set of unilateral concessions. Otherwise, uh, you need to ask how it is that your counterpart will apply. Uh, so probably uh, what should come first is uh, the necessity to build leverage in uh, and to increase leverage in the relation with China and an agreement like the CHI, which would be indeed a good way to consolidate what has been achieved in this relationship, could only make sense or, or be really applied effectively if it is grounded on much improved political climate and on a positive cooperation agenda. Our feeling is that that should come first. And so now the ratification of the CHI should not be a priority. Uh, the definition of a positive cooperation agenda, the improving of leverage should come first. So that doesn't sound very likely, um, given the situation at this moment, to come to a positive agenda. 
in your paper, you also um, elaborate quite extensively on, on that there are new issues that should also be taken into consideration when devising a new strategical approach um, on the parts of the EU towards China. Um, what, what are these issues? I know it's difficult to introduce in just a couple of minutes, but maybe you could just give our listeners an impression of what are the, the choke points and the most important parts that the EU should focus on. And maybe, Miko, you could kick it off. Yes, happy to. We, so we've identified um, three issues in particular that deserve more attention. And they're not really new in itself. They've been debated and they have also created frictions already. But it's quite obvious that um, human rights, the green transition and the digital transformation of industry um, all are new arenas in which EU-China relations will have to be redefined. And um, for all of them, it is quite clear that um, the European toolbox needs to be um, sharpened, um, but also engagement with China needs to happen on, on quite significant um, frequency uh, on, on a leadership level that brings authority. Um, and on human rights, it is simply a fact that these are issues that the European Union cannot ignore. The systematic human rights violations in China matter for us, and corporates will have to adjust their presence in China to take that into account. And the European due diligence um, instruments will kick in at a certain point in time. For some member states, it's already the case. And this will have quite significant ramifications for the way how business is being done in China. There's more in the pipeline, and there might be an even more active debate about an import ban, for instance, um, for certain products and goods coming from that region. But what it poses here really is the question of values, principles versus business interests and opportunities. And that's something where I think it's absolutely critical for European stakeholders to align because we need to be jointly pursuing those interests. It is in the longer term European interest to have both business partnerships, but grounded in a principles first position vis-a-vis -vis China. And I leave the digital and the green transition, bigger questions maybe even um, to Sebastian. Yes, I think green transition and digital economy and regulation, we have the same kind of approach, which is engage China, but at the same time, build leverage. What does it mean? On the green transition, probably the central issue in terms of economic relations is now the European CBAM project. How do we deal with that? Uh, we think first that we should move on and uh, apply CBAM, and that's also a way of building leverage. But at the same time, we should engage China. And this is particularly important because this is an area in which co-opting China is not impossible because China may find it its interest in uh, moving in that direction because they also want to apply ambitious climate policies because also they all, uh, might also find interest in these kinds of, uh, these kind of schedules because they are better placed than many other econ emerging economies to cope with decarbonization objectives. So it is possible, but uh, we identify as a key issue uh, the question of how we take their policies into account in applying CBAM. Okay, you, uh, CBAM is an adjustment mechanism. How much you uh, want to adjust depends upon how you assess the level of ambition by uh, as a partner in consideration and China in that case. So we think this is really central and we also insist at the same time uh, on the fact that green transition is also an industrial challenge and we need to really devote very uh, serious efforts to build up our positions in, in that uh, sector. 
on data regulations, there is a part which on which clearly European and Chinese approaches are irreconcilable, in particular on privacy and on political constraints. There is also another part of data regulation which has to do with manufacturing-related data and uh, all product-related data in some cases. These are increasingly uh, very important determinant of uh, companies' competitiveness. And as as such, uh, we feel like we should support uh, the European Commission, the European Union should support EU companies in their efforts to seek interoperability between the Chinese and European market. And here again, we need to build leverage and probably requesting being a bit more uh, demanding, uh, more demanding in terms of reciprocity in that area uh, would be a good leverage, taking uh, as an absolute uh, pre-request or constraints on privacy and on political issues. So those are really very substantial and also difficult topics to, yeah. uh, to negotiate with China. And this is not going to be an easy task. And moving on to a maybe even more difficult one in your paper, you also state that, and you probably referring to economic pressure exerted by China after Lithuania allowed Taiwan to open an office that was actually called Taiwan office, all that resulted in pressure being exerted on European companies um, active in Lithuania, and all these pressure points that appeared during the last months. Um, in your paper, you, you then recommend that uh, the EU needs to put economic security and sovereignty at the core of its uh, China strategy. Now, that is really a difficult one, given that we have 27 member states um, who are not always aligned. So how should that actually be implemented? And maybe, Sebastian, you would like to come in first? We stress, indeed, the, the importance of economic security and sovereignty in the relationship with China. And we stress uh, the fact that uh, it has to become core uh, in, in this relation. So there is no magic bullet in uh, achieving such a complex and wide-ranging wide objective. Um, it, it's more uh, a shift in, in approach, the, the acknowledgement that we cannot only approach the terms of this relationship based on purely economic terms, and we also have to take into account this more political dimension. So how do we do that? We, we believe that it requires a consistent approach across a a wide variety of sectors and and policy tools with two main objectives. One is supporting resilience. The second one is uh, to build uh, relevance. Supporting resilience has to do with limiting our uh, vulnerabilities uh, around uh, securing access to critical inputs. Uh, It's also about uh, uh, protecting critical infrastructures, uh, limiting vulnerabilities for strategic products, but also uh, monitoring dependence on on the Chinese market as well, because there are many illustrations in recent past that this uh, is is also used by China as political leverage. So we need to, to take that into account. We also, at the same time, stress the importance to build relevance by uh, building up strong positions in new technology sectors, by consolidating strong points, not only trying to fill in the gaps where we, we feel we are weak, but also consolidate our, our strong points, and we have many I- in Europe. So, as you see, this is a very uh, wide set of objectives and tools, and we stress that there's a need for a coherent 
approach to this, the need for a shift of emphasis toward implementation, not only uh, rules or, or negotiation, and uh, the, the increasing need for political leadership. Thank you, Sebastian. So, um, I mean, by just listening to the wide range of measures that you just described, one can also tell that uh, you do not really vote for cutting relations to China, even though right now there's a lot of discussion on whether we, we really can live with this high degree of economic dependency also. Miko, so um, you try to, to end the, the paper on a very positive note, saying we should not cut bilateral economic dependence with China. We should try to make the relationship more balanced and safer. But isn't that quite an impossible task, given the current in political climate also in China, which stresses domestic autonomy um, and does not look set for really expanding cooperation with foreign countries at the moment? It's a difficult task, but I think it's required. The world cannot afford to decouple from China and Europe cannot do that. It would have massive costs. And I think we have to take an approach that is about recalibrating, about a stepwise shift away from over-dependence where it is actually the case. So uh, we have to first do our homework and establish exactly what our criteria for over-dependence are across different layers. And then it's about taking um, policy steps that ensure that diversification and mitigation of certain risks is happening in a way that is actually economical. Because obviously not reshoring is not the solution for everything and tariffs are not the solution for dealing with um, China in most cases. So um, that has been tested luckily for us in some ways. Um, so we can respond today um, that the European solution needs to be different. Um, and uh, for that, the homework needs to be done. It has started already. It goes much beyond just the Lithuania case. There's just one of the few and many triggers that we've seen over the past years, really. And we have to look at our input vulnerabilities. And that is extremely high on the agenda at the moment with regard to raw materials that not only supply our green transition, but are more generally relevant for the European industrial base. Um, it's a different story to tell about um, Europe's corporate dependency on China. Uh, and it's good news, I think, that you know the European Union has just recently been able to again get back into the business of um, signing and implementing free trade agreements because that's front and center when we think about um, diversification strategies. And it is also about recalibrating the incentive systems for deepening corporate footprints in China. So not necessarily about screening all outbound investment. So that, that's a required debate that we need to have. But the first step would be to look at um, the incentive system and the support of that public policy actually gives for um, that deepening corporate footprint. Uh, companies will do business in the future. And I think we, we, we have to acknowledge that and also respect it. Um, they take a lot of risk by doing that. There's an interest on the public policy side to make sure it happens in the boundaries that are set by our values and principles. And we have to make sure that the eventual costs of overdependent are adequately assessed and then distributed. Um, so from that perspective, a lot of homework indeed, but I think it's a doable task and it does not involve necessary decoupling. The biggest challenge that we face in the future is how do we actually position ourselves with regard to the deeper entanglement of European Chinese innovation ecosystems. That 
that is extremely difficult to sort out. So what type of R&D, in which sectors, in which industries, for what technologies should happen in China and should be driven by European corporates? You don't only have a dual-use component to that question where civil military integration um, in China poses significant challenges for us, but it's about the future um, of European technology leadership in many arenas. And, and that's a big um, challenge that we still have to resolve and where a lot of smart work by others needs to be done. Yeah, and a challenge that definitely French and German researchers can work on together, policymakers as well. That leads to my last question, which I would ask you to answer briefly. How do you see the role of France and Germany in shaping the EU's economic uh, China strategy? And maybe if I ask Sebastian first, what does the French side expect from the German side? And then Miko, what does the German side expect from, from the French side? But Sebastian, you go first. I, I think the, the question is really how to develop uh, an agenda which makes sense at the EU-wide level. And well, it is remarkable when you look at, the, um, at uh, economic relations with China that they differ very substantially across member states. And in this regard, I think France and Germany are well-placed to think through the consequences of this situation because they are very different in the intensity of relationship with China. They are uh, uh, far more intensive in the German case, uh, whether it is in terms of uh, trade or investment. So I think it's a good uh, point to a good situation to begin with um, because uh, France and Germany are well-placed to acknowledge the, the, the different uh, positions of, of different countries. Um, so what do we expect? Uh, defining um, an agenda which is pragmatic, realistic, efficient from a political point of view, uh, which is as well positive on an economic point of view. Pragmatic and realistic agenda. Miko, is that what the German side also expects the French side to uh, work on together? Yes, and I think it's a question of mutual expectations, really. Uh, and, and we can look at past successes here. Uh, the German-French coordination was successful in the past when it involved other member states and has enabled the Commission to do its job. Um, so uh, the couple can function as a, an accelerator, an incubator, enabler. I think that's the appropriate role. And um, starting from providing a joint assessment, uh, so getting the facts right, um, to making sure that the right people work on those agendas and have the capacity to push them forward in their individual uh, roles, right? Um, the French Council Presidency has made significant progress on, on some China-related files, uh, as I think has the German um, Council Presidency when it was its uh, turn. So these are um, different roles whenever they um, fall in their laps, but um, they have to start from a joint vision. So I think the understanding that um, this rebalancing of the holy trinity of the part relationship with China needs to happen, that we look at an agenda that is not just driven by the idea to achieve more reciprocity and fair trade, but rather that economic sovereignty and security are front and center. As long as we maintain an alignment towards that direction, I think um, we're, we're off to a good start for um, the coming months. Thank you. At least we're off for a good start to have uh, gauged interest in the paper you 
just published. Thank you both, um, Sebastian and Miko, for your insights Thank and you assessments. Me. Dear listeners, you can find a link to Miko's and Sebastian's joint paper. It's titled Bolstering Europe's Economic Strategy Vis-a-Vis -vis China on our website, www.merix.org. Um, and it was just published beginning of July. So recommending to everyone to uh, have a deeper look at their analysis. Thank you for being here. And thanks everyone out there for listening. Goodbye. Bye, thank you. Thank you.